Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new Redefining Technology podcast. Standing on two feet, having dexterous hands, developing a language that allows us to communicate, and the ability to understand abstract concepts. These are all part of the equation of humanity. Still, it is the capacity to create tools and advance the technology that has allowed us to thrive on this planet and maybe on others. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Marco. Sean. Do you have your suit uh, on for travel? Uh, I have some goggles lately that I that I'm wearing and I go into virtual reality. So technically I have visited the International Space Station. Not really though. Virtually. And uh, and how was that? I felt a little bit sick because I, I get motion sick sickness, so I'm getting used to that. But that's a conversation for someone else. Well, that's, uh, that's where technology is not serving you as it should. I, I am like, okay, I'm simulating to be here, but there is people actually living in this small environment, all weird and bouncing around. And it's just amazing. And, and it's been going on for a long time. I mean, it's not that we just went to space. And I think I broke the news. We're talking about space today. That's right. And I'm wondering when you're up there, were you wearing your hoodie? <laughs> and you bring around a screwdriver and start opening up panels and, uh, and trying passwords to log in. What, what were you doing up there? Well, I wouldn't hack myself, but, uh, you know, we've talked to some astronauts uh, in the past. And uh, remember what they say, you, you use what you got there. So you, you have to, if there is a problem, <laughs> that's it. Unless you're waiting for the next uh, shipment to arrive. Exactly. But the problem could be digital. Could be digital, and space is so much more than the International Space Station, right? There are other things up there uh, besides A that, lot. satellites and uh, things on Earth that uh, communicate and control those things, and a bunch of things in between, I'm sure. And uh, I suspect that's what we're going to talk about today, right, Marco? We are. We are. I saw a post of a, a good friend of ours, uh, Joshua Belk, which we'll introduce in such a short time. But it inspired me to talk about something that we have touched here and there about security in space. And we're talking about physical security, but we're talking about cybersecurity and how everything that rotates around us in 
up in the air, up in space, it's affecting our life, GPS system and, and communication and a lot of other things. So we can't just pretend it doesn't exist or that because it's there, it's safe. Communication is, is open uh, at this point. So I'd say, yes, Sean, we're talking about space security. Well, that's the problem is we, we are talking and we have so much, someone so much better to do the talking than us. <laughs> so let's bring him in. Let's Joshua. Bring Joshua. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we have the pleasure of seeing you virtually again here. Uh, it's great to connect. Hope you're well. Uh, thanks for being on. Sean, Marco, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, since we met uh, in L.A., um, you've been on a journey. <laughs> you've, you've done a lot of things, and, and the post that Marco's touching on uh, is what prompted us to have this conversation. What, uh, what have you been up to? So the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to work in the space industry, and <clears throat> I was recalled to active duty uh, in the Navy, and they, they took me to the Space Command in Colorado. And it was a it's pretty interesting experience working alongside a lot of professionals who were technical and non-technical and truly discovering what does it mean to work in space, even though you're here on Earth. So the complexity of the problem of space was one of the things that um, I never truly gave thought to. And as you as you delve into space, we see a lot of movies and they're so much fun to watch. They're my favorite movies. And so being kind of a space sci-fi junkie in a way, it was exciting to get involved and start to see, you know, just the, the daily issues that would come up um, all along. Everything it takes to get, you know, a space launch to put a satellite on orbit and then to manage it after the fact. And it, you know, we're talking just massive operations here. And as I was doing this the whole time, I kept thinking about uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin and some of the privatized companies, because the main thing that I've seen change in space over the last few years is the privatization and, and sort of the shift from, it used to just be a government-led um, operation. You know, we always thought space and NASA were kind of synonymous. Growing up watching the, you know, the space shuttles take off and just seeing... <clears throat> all the things happening and hearing about the weather satellites and, and uh, of course, GPS, you know, came into play later on and you just never really considered that, that people would be taking uh, space flights in a civilian capacity as we saw over this last year. And um, just so many changes have happened even in, in the last 24 months. And I think it's truly amazing. And we hear about it, but we don't really grasp the complexity or even the risk that people are uh, putting themselves in just to be a part of it. Yeah, and, and the reason why I'm excited to talk about this with you is because this is the segment that we call redefining society. And and many, as we said at the beginning, we don't even think about how space is affecting us. I mean, it's cool to see in the news, it's cool to see the takeoff. I mean, it, it, what you said, uh, the, the race for space been going on since the 50s. And, you know, the, the, in 1969, we went to the moon and it was Russia versus United States, right? I, who's going to get there first? And it seems it was more of a, I don't know, a ribbon on the Cold War. Who's stronger, more powerful, who can get stuff done? But then now is affecting our, really our life. It's not just looking at it. So if you can help us maybe to give 
a big picture of how we earthlings interact <laughs> with space. Where have we gone so far and, and what do we have to play with, with the private sector involved as well? Sure. The space, as I see it, uh, you know, these views are, are all my views. And and I think uh, they come, you know, with a bit of in, information and in that I'm informed in, in working through the environment of space. But truly, uh, one thing that I found in, to be accurate is that space affects all of us equally. And, and if you're operating your cell phone, it's somehow communicating through satellite communications and these network providers, we just, we just really water it down for everyone. And so every day, um, as we've, I mean, 10 years ago, our, our homes weren't smart homes, you know, and now they're smart homes. And so you have all these devices and you're connecting, you know, average person has like three or four devices always connected and sometimes in a household with teenagers maybe you have like a dozen probably more more like 15 or 20 you know depending on every little thing that you're somehow um, transmitting information across in a digital format is being supported by this backbone this network of um, satellites that are operational in space and to create a constellation you know, I think we did a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, 20 years ago in putting things on orbit and trying to manage them. And then we just got smarter and smarter about it. And <clears throat> when I was studying what satellites uh, are comprised of over this last year, mostly out of personal curiosity, I never really considered the, um, the effects of the environment. So here on Earth, we were, we were kind of talking about the weather before the show and and how in different parts of the country it's cold and hot in the same day. And just take that to, you know, a much further extreme. And in terms of the engineers working on building these uh, satellites that support these functions, sure, there's a technical component, but then they have to withstand extreme temperatures when they rotate into the sun and extreme temperatures when they're, um, when they're outside of the uh, light of the sun and they're in the shadow. And as they're moving around in relationship to the earth, trying to keep um, the same location and the materials that are involved have to withstand these great um, differences. And then there's no gravity, right? So the, so the gravitational pull, I mean, there's, there's a certain type of gravity, but it's not what we experience here. So there's effects of, um, of physics. We all, I like to joke before I took this, these roles, I would say like, Oh, it's not rocket science kind of saying like things weren't that important. And I had to stop myself because I realized it really was rocket science. <laughs> and <laughs> as we, as we dealt with these issues, um, you could see the complexity of, of just uh, how awesome it was that science and technology really came together. And I wish more people would get involved in science and technology with space because, uh, it's truly fascinating and the problems that you can solve are, are interesting in that we're, we're coming up with different ways to do uh, the same old thing all the time in every, in every kind of industry. And in this case, you know, we look at microsats. So we had, we used to have huge giant satellites that would go up and um, large panels. And I never considered that these things are flying around um, on orbit in, in their, their various, um, categories, which are, you know, something like there's low earth orbit and then there's like geosynchronous orbit and a few others. And so their proximity to the earth and 
And then we have meteor showers, right? And nobody really considers like, oh, well, how's the day in the life of the guy who's managing the satellite and, and dealing with like a meteor shower that's that um, we all think like, oh, look, they're shooting stars and we're having a great time watching it. And he's um, hoping that this doesn't damage the satellite as it passes through. I want to I want to go deeper with you, Josh, on what's possible and and. And perhaps the way we're thinking as a society, you're not thinking about how we solve problems. And I, I was trying to find it as you were talking. Uh, I came across a list of satellites and, and that were being used for different things. And I was doing some research for one of our other episodes looking at uh, satellites used to detect spot, uh, a spot fire that could potentially become a larger fire uh, in, in a big region like in California, let's say. And that was like one of, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of satellites, all purpose built to do different things, measure distance, uh, look for heat, uh, listen for sound. I mean, all, all kinds of different things. How, how are we, and is it with the move from government to commercial, how are we looking at the world of space? And what can we do to improve our society, recognizing that these technologies exist? That's a great question because I think when we talk about a place like space where nobody owns it, it's truly, um, it, it's kind of different even than the ocean, you know, as uh, being a, a sailor who loves to get out on the sea and, um, and I truly, I, I love sailboating and, and all that thing passing across the ocean, you're in no man's land. Um, but when you hit a certain point, you're in somebody's territory or in space that doesn't exist. You know, there is no uh, definition of like who owns what kind of space. Right. And there's been uh, agreements through, through the last 50 years of, of sort of a, let's call it an organization of how to um, put your stuff in space and keep it there and stay out of each other's way. And I think that's just been beneficial to everyone. So in a, in the complexity of that, it gets way more complicated now because with the previously it was just government. Now you have um, private companies putting microsats on orbit. And we were talking, I read something this last year about, uh, I think SpaceX wanted 60,000 microsats uh, as part of their Starlink constellation. And I was just trying to imagine what is 60,000 microsats around uh, the earth look like. And occasionally you'll see uh, there's a website called like stuff in space and you can, you can zoom out and it will show you this um, like picture of the earth with all the space debris and objects around it. And so you get everything satellites and then just other stuff. And it creates a sort of a beautiful and scary picture at once of all these things that are floating around the earth that, you know, didn't exist before. And when you look at what's the potential, uh, the potential is that, we could have a, a very uh, congested space environment where there's there's not a lot of windows um, as there has been in the past to to launch. And one thing that people probably don't give a lot of thought to is that you know you can't just launch a uh, a rocket into space in any direction. I mean, you could, but they don't do it that way. They they launch them in in either certain directions um, to get you know for the for the satellite to go on uh, like an equator 
orbit or, or like a polar orbit or something like that. And so there's different ways that they do it, but they do that because it's the most efficient and cost effective. And as we think about, you know, the reality is well, while lots of things are possible, only certain things are going to happen because of budget and constraints and just how people operate businesses. So um, the congestion of space is certainly, it's been a concern for a while. People talk about it a lot. And um, I would really love to create a space junk cleanup business. I think somebody's doing that already because, <laughs> you know, we, we already managed to, <laughs> to, to put trash in space and it's been a, I mean, that long, right? You want to talk about the ocean and how we, you know, because the beautiful thing that you say that diapers in space. <laughs> exactly. But what made you made me think when you talk about the ocean is how do we often refer to the, the space discovery as it used to be the, the discovery to go through the ocean to find new land when we didn't know what was there. And so there is that adventure that sense of going there but then as you said it becomes a business right a lot of boats on the ocean it becomes an infrastructure for for commerce and markets and and all of that cables under the ocean so it's happening in in space so if nobody owns space but you do own i'm assuming the satellite that you put up there sure um how do these people and this organization and states are working together to to create this. I mean, are we doing this with the creation of new government entity, a collaboration at a global level? What, is there like an organization that overview all of this or we are still like, eh, we'll figure out as we go? So the, the UN has some um, sort of agreements that people have, I say people, nations have signed up to, support and there is there are bilateral uh, agreements between the nations that have space capability that kind of say out of the best interest of everyone you know we have to we have to manage how things go up it's also a bit of responsibility and in my opinion it's truly born out of the cost so there's there's a cost in time research and development and and the materials themselves and these aren't things that as I alluded to at the beginning, they're, they're complex because they're not just normal, you know, things that you can find uh, every day in a manufacturing plant. It's something that takes very specific science, specific materials They have to be treated right. They have to be, um, you know, manage the whole process. And if a country is, or even a company is going to take time and effort to put something like that uh, into space, they're not going to risk, um, you know, failure because they didn't play well with everybody else that's already out there. Mm -hmm. So it, interestingly at this time, you know, that's that cost. I think if the cost goes down in the future, this is just pure speculation that then you might see the potential for um, less responsible behaviors. But at the moment, everybody's uh, playing well because it costs so much in, in time, energy and effort. So talk to me a bit about the, the technology being used. Because when I, when I used to think about space, uh, I would think that there may be some technologies created for space that find use and value on Earth. And now when I think about it, uh, my 
my sense is there's a lot of technology being used on earth that's now being used in space as well and obviously a mix of mix of things that are government developed and and high-powered wealthy commercial developers create as well but this mix of technologies makes me think that we now have this ecosystem of devices and systems and and communications and data streams and all the all these things that that I, I compare it to SCADA systems, right? Where sure. they, at one point they were kind of disconnected all on their own. Only certain people created them and used the technologies, but then all of a sudden connected to the internet and you have this, we have this major issue with risk. So talk to me a bit about the technology ecosystem, government built, commercial built, wealthy built, consumer driven, all this stuff coming together to enable the things that we're talking about here. What's the so in theory, the satellite communications, uh, probably in the past, they weren't all encrypted. Certainly there's some that were unencrypted and open to everyone. And that was more of a universal um, you know, communication that everyone could intercept and receive. And you see that a lot, I think, in places where it makes sense. Um, for example, you might see communications for uh, for boats on the ocean, you know, for cargo vessels and different shipping lanes and things like that, because they're, they're sensing the, the sensors are um, providing maritime weather information, which is important for uh, shipping lanes and cargo and things to menu, uh, move across the ocean. And that's been, and still is the primary way that we move goods across the earth. So in, in that regard, uh, it's, hugely important to have everybody kind of, of having access to the same information and that technology has gotten better and it is interesting um, that you see not just on the ocean but you see across the entire face of the earth you'll see uh, these elements that they, they can determine if there's a fire in the forest or if there's you know sea levels um, are rising or lowering in certain places and so it kind of is interesting because it feeds a greater conversation in many ways you know you see people using the information for just planning their route across the ocean. And you see other people using the information just to say, well, this is what the historics of that region have been. And um, perhaps, you know, providing some light into questions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to understand, like global warming and, and different things. And it informs us. It doesn't really say one way or the other what's happening, but it informs us data. And that data eventually leads to greater thought. Moving away from that, you see who encrypted. owns that data. Uh, <laughs> who has access? I to mean, it? if it's if it's unencrypted, it, and I don't think anyone, you know, somebody probably owns it. Whoever the satellite um, constellation owner is may technically own that data, but from but it's like open source, right? It's like open source code in a way, in, in that someone created it, but everyone's consuming it, and it's. Uh, it's not really being manipulated by that because it's just a matter of a beacon is sounding off in the Barents Sea telling you that there's 20-foot uh, swells, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to avoid that. <laughs> you know. So, I don't, And so that data is not really – it's not about ownership in that case. Um, I think the – if you take it a level deeper from that, you might say, well, who owns the – the intellectual property that created that beacon or that created the communication between those two sensors where they could um, both transmit and receive 
and then uh, put that into a larger context. That that's yeah. probably perhaps where maybe some data ownership could happen but yeah and i know marco probably wants to jump in here but i'm, I'm just thinking in terms of so maybe less ownership of the data but to your point if if i can consume it what can i do with that that data what information can i make of it combined with other things to perhaps control the supply chain or or uh, impact it in some way uh, moving goods around or perhaps manipulate the sensor data to compete better with some of the other companies that I that I go up against or nation states uh, disrupting I, things. I from think other if nations. you want to, if you're talking about the commercialization of space, then you might say, okay, um, we've found a way to sort of uh, capitalize on everything here in America, and it's great. Um, in some ways, it's frustrating though, right? Because you know when you go to other countries and you use your cell phone, like I remember uh, used to pay for every single text and every, every minute and it was sort of pay as you go. And then eventually it led to like a service where you get unlimited data and, but you're paying like a fee. So things have changed over time with that regard. And if, if space is um, let's call it slightly behind all that, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be too far of a leap to say that, that if companies thought that they could provide and sell a service, a subscription based service, of information, whether it's the weather. I mean, and you can see this on your phone. You pay for apps that are that are like the radar and different other kinds of weather apps. Uh, as one example, those are all using some information coming from space. You probably could get all that information in a different way. They're just providing it to you the same as uh, a news source. And the convenience is what people pay for. Not because the access is there. They just have to have the know-how to of where to go find it. So every time that we have a conversation about space and, and you see that a lot on social media, you know, like a lot of private company put in a lot of money. Sometimes it may sound like it's a stunt, a commercial stunt, send a celebrity up in space. But the truth is, this is where we're going. And many people question like, why are we spending all this money to go in space? when we could do so much here down on earth. My, usually my answer is because it helped us here on earth to go in space, right? What is your point of view on that? Like if you had to explain this to someone that it's like, no need to go there, we got so many problems here. I mean, what, what's your vision on that? Why are we going through all this? It's interesting when you said that, I was also thinking about the ocean, you're right. And I thought to myself, how many people are signing up to go on a submarine to do 20,000 leagues under the, under the sea, right? And <laughs> go explore the, the abyss somewhere and there's zero. There's nobody signing up for that. You can't sell it. Nobody wants to buy it. And there's no light, you know, at, at certain levels of the ocean. And so there's nothing to see, you know, theoretically. Um, certainly we could, we could bring that and national, you know, geographic tries to help us out once in a while. But, um, I think in, in the ocean exploration, it's sort of, uh, there's a lot that still remains to be done and people aren't that interested in it. I truly cannot figure out why, because it's right here, it's accessible and, and it's a, probably a lot easier to do, uh, than, 
trying to send somebody into space where there's no oxygen and there's all these other competing elements of hot and cold and different um, raw materials that are needed that uh, the costs are just huge. So as people um, think about it, it's always, it's, I think we're in love with this dream that, that um, you know, there's, there's a heaven out there. And if we can, if we can explore it or get to it or whatever, then it, then it exists or, or, an, uh, you know, extraterrestrial uh, life or some other planet. And you hear people talk about like uh, Mars and getting to the red planet and then colonizing it. And, um, and then there's every once in a while you hear some conversation about the moon and what's ethical and what should we do or not do to it. There's, there's a lot of danger in, in that if we don't act appropriately, we could um, make some mistakes in space. I think that that's a long ways off and it wouldn't happen. But at the same point, uh, you know, people still want to know what, what it's like to, um, to see rocks from the moon. And it's interesting. And there's just, uh, we're just never going to get away from the fact that there's some unexplored infinite uh, galaxy out there that like, we just cannot get our heads around what, what's the possibility of um, sort of the X factor, right? What's out there. I think that's why people continue to look out to space instead of um, looking around here. I feel like we probably could do a lot better job in um, creating different industries here on the earth that would, that would make it more sustainable and make it easier for us to um, make better use of the resources we have. But contrast to that, if you think about so many advances in our technology have been born out of the fact that scientists had to try to do something or solve a problem for space. So interestingly, one feeds the other. And while we could sit back and kind of say, well, we should probably be looking at better ways to do things on earth. A lot of it's been um, sort of the, the child or grandchild of things that happened because we we're trying to solve space problems. Well, we need both, right? I we mean, do need both, yeah. you ma you mentioned uh, Julius Verne's, and you know he wrote about down under the ocean, and he wrote about going into space or in the middle of Earth. So there is this sense of going anywhere, and, and there is this phenomenon that many many astronauts experience when they can see the globe from way up there, and they're like, "This is we come here to understand what." the earth works like what the earth is and how you know a pale blue dot we are in 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 the universe so it's very philosophical but i, I think also as you said there is a lot of innovation that come with that um sean should we jump into the future and see if we're if we're going to be safe if uh, if we're going to put more stuff in space and maybe joshua has some uh, some view into this little let's get a little sci-fi here yes let's uh i don't even know the right term hyper uh <laughs> what would it be imaginative i don't know yeah there's that too <laughs> i don't know let, let, let's take a let's take a drive into space future josh what do you what do you see what um do you see a society where technology helps us on earth um, helps us escape Earth. <laughs> where, where, where do you see things headed? I think 
as you're considering this from a, from a, I mean, we're just going to blue sky this completely and, um, and really just, you know, not limit ourselves to anything that we're already thinking what practically has to happen. So when I think about these situations, I go, okay, what's, what are we really going to do? And in order to make some of the things that you just described happen, um, space flight itself has to evolve. And that's what you're seeing right now. You're seeing people are leaving the atmosphere and coming back in. So they're, they're making an exit and making an entry and it's controlled. And, and it's something that, um, you know, will only improve because the power and the thrust and the, the lift and all the things that are required to move to one, get out of earth and then move into, um, you know, entering the atmosphere of another planet, they have to manage all that and control it. And so those things have to happen. And then there's the considerations of, uh, just the human body. And while astronauts have, um, helped us with that, the understanding of, of what it means to be in space as a, as a physical being, you know, we still, we're still going to have some exploration to do in other atmospheres and figure out what, um, you know, what space math and science needs to be done. You know, is there a, is there a formula of different, um, gases that we can breathe that, that make us more sustainable or able to, endure in an environment that's not natural, you know, or, or does it become natural because we have some treatment, you know, so it kind of opens up uh, every aspect of society becomes part of this because then it's, you know, what kind of food and water do we take? And uh, that's why I love the sci-fi movies. You see everything from pills to, to people breathing masks. And then they, they create these, um, environments where they have oxygen all of a sudden and uh, gravity seems to be a thing and then it's not a thing. And the reality is for us to sustain life is really the key. So like, so getting there is one thing, you know, wherever that might be. And the space station uh, is a, is a great experiment. That's just been wonderful for science and helping people kind of understand, uh, especially, you know, kids that watch stuff in space and they get to see, all the astronauts on the space station learning and what problems are out there and how they solve different things, but going to another planet and then trying to, um, for example, test out what kind of food, what, what even grows there versus in, and what's edible and what's not, you know, like what can we handle? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there's a, that there's a um, good answer for that other than experimentation. Yeah. I think you're right. It's really this desire to explore. It's like when you wonder, why would you want to risk your life to go on top of Mount Everest? Why would you want to, you know, go on Mars? We already know it's kind of crappy there, you know, but we people want to go and explore and see if we can actually live there and, and, and prosper. And we have the limit of our lifespan. That's the biggest limit we may have because, you know, stuff is far away. It takes time to go in places and maybe, you know, robotics are going to help us with that. Artificial intelligence, we'll see. But the big question as we get to an end here is, can we do it safely? And can we do it as, as a unity of humans aiming together to go somewhere? Or are we going to repeat the same mistake or 
We're gonna Forget start Star Wars, you know, and and fight in space. And each one is gonna have his own independent way to go up there. Uh, that, that's why I'm concerned from a societal perspective. What you know, and, and you you talk about sci-fi. I also t- think about you know, like the Death Star, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, you know, it was a it was a thermal vent that allowed us to destroy that entire thing. So can we do it safely and can we do it in the interest of humanity? That's, I'm going to leave you with these two questions to answer. To answer that question, I'll start with human life is probably the most uh, expensive asset we have, right? So it's priceless. And then everything else kind of pales in comparison. So we can say it costs millions or billions or hundreds of thousands or whatever, and it gets more affordable more cost-effective, more uh, technologically efficient. The one thing that's a constant doesn't change is the value of human life. So as I, as I think about, can we do it safely? At, we've done it safely. You know, we're doing it safely. Now, um, getting somebody up there and back is one thing. Sustaining is something different. And I think that's the, that's the key that, perhaps no one's really talking about just yet because we, they probably don't feel like it's something that um, we could achieve today. And I think as we, when you see private companies um, get to Mars and, and do whatever they think they want to do, they're going to learn some things about that and they're going to figure out this is, this is a great idea or it's a terrible idea. And then, you know, some other, somebody else is going to come along and say, well, um, I think we can do it better. And we're going to keep seeing that innovation because that's just sort of a human spirit. And we've seen that all through history and uh, especially this last 150 years, it just took the boom of um, everything, you know, starting from manufacturing to electricity to the whole, you know, now we're operating with little devices in our hands all the time. So I think uh, things get more, they get smaller in a way, right? Technology, the, you know, microchips and everything, it gets smaller, gets more compact, more efficient, more um, effective and then there but there's a part that's lacking which is how does the human survive and if that's um that's just the great unknown i think we can solve the other problems safely i think they can be done uh, even commercialized at some point right (laughs) for profit but uh how do you you know just like the airline industry or other industries that transport people how do you move people safely and bring them back? Because that's what they want. Yeah. Or, you know, everyone would climb Everest if they thought they could come back safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're missing a big part of the story. Uh, and I think that to, to close this, and then I'm going to pass it to, to Sean, is, is the fact that I think we have ma- many more chances of success whatever success is, if we do it together, right? I mean, sure. I think what has been happening in the past two years here on planet Earth with the pandemic is a good example of that. You, you can't just close borders. There are no borders. Our planes flying all over the places. Goods are going all over the places. There are no borders in space. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, unless you start conquering planets and then you play risk in space. Sean, you want to play risk in space? I'm already playing risk in space. <laughs> no, I think excellent points, Marco. And I, I think the, the thing that's sticking out of my mind, Josh, you mentioned 
moving people around. And I look at the world of autonomous vehicles and I, I think blow that environment up a gazillion times to space Yeah, where we're trying to fit a car on a road, an autonomous car on a road that was designed to be pulling wagons with horses, right? Mm. Uh, that were cobblestone at one point and really, really tiny. And I think we're, we're starting to see that we not only have to change the way the vehicles are formed and the people ride in them and the environment that they travel within change. And you mentioned something earlier where what gases are we going to take? And I think, I think we also have to look, what I'm hearing is look beyond the journey and the destination, but also look at ourselves because there may be some things we have to change about our own humanity, biohacking, right? Absolutely. Maybe yeah. we need, maybe we need bio, digital lungs or we need different, uh, different ways to see and hear, or I don't know, a lot of those things may need to change physically for us in order for this to succeed. And I don't know if we've approached any of that yet, but uh, it's an interesting, interesting space, pun intended. I'm thinking of the bionic man when you say that, but it's right. not exactly the same thing, but sir, because that's exactly what I'm getting after is that, um, there will be, there's a, there would naturally be a resistance to, um, you know, changing our bodies drastically for most people, but there'll be some people who want to experiment and be a part of, um, something like that. I think we're going to, we're going to have to figure out what's the tolerance there. And unfortunately, you know, that's the science that's probably lacking behind is that experimenting with humans is not something people uh, consider as ethical. So, you know, um, but there's going to have to be some, there's going to have to be some understanding of how, how this happens. And um, I kind of liken it to, you know, 1800s people, um, you know, dissecting bodies and understanding the human body. Right. And now we have these really great presentations of this is how the human body works. So it probably just needs to go another level deeper and find out what are the interactions of, um, and, and the problem I think you'll see is that we have to recreate a, an environment of where we're going, not where we are. And so that that's the complexity of it is that, managing what our bodies can do here or what tolerances there are here is, is kind of like some knowns. But when you get into that, uh, that fourth box or whatever of like the, I don't know what I don't know. And, and I'm going to try to solve some problems. We have to definitely figure out what's the environment where we're headed, recreate that, which is going to be super complex and then test what we think we can do. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what we've done so far, but I, I think it, it's all about the why too. Why, why do we do this? And this could be a great conversation, Sean, for another episode why? where we get a little bit more philosophical. Why? Exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because it's why? a way to know ourselves. Joshua, it was a pleasure having you. And Thank you. See you virtually again, um, hopefully soon in person, and uh, sharing this this story. And as usual, Sean, I hope people have more questions in their head than uh, than answers right now, because that's a good thing. Yes, right. absolutely. Yeah, Joshua, pleasure. Appreciate it. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. 
the Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at Devo.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Technology Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.